Uh, when Sarah and I were doing premarital counseling, we lived in Nashville, and, and one of the pastors at our church there was doing it with us. And we sat down um, uh, probably about the second time we had met with him, and he said, he asked this question, and I think I've shared it before, um, but I'll share it again. He said, so do you guys know everything about each other? And um, Sarah was over there nodding yes, and I was nodding no. And, um, and he's like, wait, Brent, why, like, what do you mean no? And I was like, well, you know, there, there was this Chris Rock thing that I saw, and Chris Rock was doing this stand-up bit, and, and he was kind of making a lot of the situation where when two people are getting to know each other, you don't really share everything. You share the best parts of you and kind of all this stuff. I was like, yeah, I mean, like, that's what we've done. And Sarah takes this, gets this look over her like, no, that, that's not what I've done. Why have you done this to me? And um, I thought it was funny. She did not think it was funny, and indeed it wasn't funny. Um, <laughs> I talk to you guys a lot about your relationships, uh, not just dating relationships, um, romantic relationships, but friendships, parental relationships, relationships of all kinds. And um, part, really a big part of that discussion and talking with y'all is at some level getting at your fears. What is it that we fear in relationships? And if I could boil down the myriad of fears that we have to one thing, I would say this, that more than anything it seems that we fear being a burden to other people. We fear that the stuff that we're bringing to the table is just going to be too much. That when people really get to know us, when they find out about the deep things of our lives, the past, the present, the fears and insecurities about the future, we think it will be too much. We think that burden will be too heavy. You want to be the kind of friend or boyfriend or wife who who brings joy and brightness and happiness to people's lives. And, um, but the difficulty of that is that you know the reality of your story doesn't always allow that. And what that leads to is this middle ground between what you are and what you want to be, between the real you and the ideal you. And that middle ground, for many of us, produces a sort of paralysis. Because we operate under this assumption of, okay, I've got these friends, but they don't know the real me. I was talking to a friend here um, not that long ago, and he had just a really, really heavy story. And, and I said, man, I, I bet you, just, you don't share that with a lot of people. And he said, you're the second person in my life I've ever shared that with. And that wasn't surprising, the nature of that story. And I said, I, I bet that leaves you feeling pretty alone because he, he's like, yeah, I mean, I don't, I wouldn't want to load that onto people. And in that sentiment, he's capturing all the stuff that you and I talk about and that you talk about with your friends and that you fear and they fear. We don't want to be a burden to other people. We want to be the, the smile and wink emojis, but in reality, we're like the hesitant, mouthless. Uh, if there was a depressed emoji, it'd be like an emoji with a black cloud and raindrops. Um, we're the emoji that's the upside down, like frowny face. That's, that's actually who we are um, many days. And we're that way because of um, our difficult family histories. We're that way because we're anxious and we've assumed people don't want to listen to us talk about that anymore. 
we're that way because uh, you've got sexual baggage, and, and even in calling it sexual baggage, that assumes that it's going to be a burden to other people. Um, maybe you're just not very good at the people thing, at just socially interacting with others, and so bringing that into a relationship is just has the, um, the future of being not good, right? I'm not going to be good at this, and so I'm not going to do it. We don't want to be a burden. I don't want to be a burden. <clears throat> and friends, we can no more um, poof away those burdens and those insecurities and those fears than we can control the wind in Oklahoma. We can prepare for the wind by dressing and wearing the right things, um, by not even bothering to fix our hair that day if you're a girl, by um, right not taking out an umbrella if you know it's going to be like... We can prepare, but we can't control the wind. You can prepare for your burdens and relationships, but you can't control them. You can't make them go away. They're going to be there. They're going to show up. And because that's true, relationships are hard. Love is a difficult concept. But what I'm going to suggest tonight in this passage is that true and deep and worthwhile love necessitates the sharing and the bearing of burdens with one another. And because we live in a broken world, these burdens aren't optional. It's not like a box that we check at the salad bar over there at Baja. Um, You can't like be pretty and have a good personality. Yes, yes, burdens. Nah, I don't want that. Like we all have this. It's part of who we are. And it's part of this story right here, which I've been suggesting for a couple weeks now is a love story. It's a love story between Ruth and Boaz But that love story is a microcosm of the bigger love story, which is being carried throughout the thread of Scripture between God and His people. It's a redemptive love story. It's a Him buying us back from all of our brokenness and all of our burdens. And we're going to get a bigger glimpse of that tonight in this passage. So Ruth 3, uh, the whole chapter, Ruth chapter 3, 1 through 18. This is God's Word. It says, Then Naomi, her, and her is Ruth, Naomi, Ruth's mother-in-law, said to her, My daughter, should I not seek rest for you, that that it may be well with you? Is not Boaz our relative with whose young women you, uh, you were? See, he is winnowing barley tonight at the threshing floor. Wash, therefore, and anoint yourself, and put on your cloak, and go down to the threshing floor. But do not make yourself known to the man until he has finished eating and drinking. But when he lies down, observe the place where he lies. Then go and uncover his feet and lie down, and he will tell you what to do. And she replied, all that you say, I will do. So she went down to the threshing floor and did just as her mother-in-law had commanded her. And when Boaz had eaten and drunk, his heart was merry. He went, down, uh, he went to lie down at the end of the heap of grain. Then she came softly and uncovered his feet and lay down. And at midnight, the man was startled and turned over. And behold, a woman laid his feet. And he said, who are you? And she said, I'm Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. And he said, May you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter. You have made this last kindness greater than the first, in that you have not gone after young men, whether poor or rich. And now, my daughter, do not fear. I will do for you all that you ask, for all, of, all my fellow townsmen know that you are a worthy woman. And now it is true that I am a redeemer, yet there is a, greater, there is a redeemer nearer than I am. Remain tonight, and in the morning, if he will redeem you good, let him do it. But if he is not willing to redeem you, then as the Lord lives, I will redeem you. So lie down till the morning. 
So she lay at his feet until the morning, but arose before one could recognize her. And he said, Let it not be known that the woman came to the threshing floor. And he said, Bring the garment you are wearing and hold it out. So she held it out. And he measured out six measures of barley and put it on her. Then she went into the city. And when she came to her mother-in-law, she said, How did you fare, my daughter? And she told her all that the man had done for her, saying, These six measures of barley he gave to me, for he said to me, You must not go back empty-handed to your mother-in-law. She replied, Wait, my daughter, until you learn how the matter turns out. For the man will not rest, but will settle the matter today. This is God's word. May he add his blessing to it. Before we jump in and talk about this passage, the implications for us tonight, I want to give thanks to a couple different people in this. One is a guy named Greg Thompson, who helped me see the implications of the burden of love in this passage. And a second one is a seminary professor of mine named Dr. John Currid. And Dr. Currid was very helpful because um, basically, if you've ever heard this passage, I'm guessing taught maybe in a class here, or a lot of times even as pastors work through this passage preaching it, there is this huge assumption that this is this highly sexually charged, seductive uh, passage. That this right here amounts to Ruth prostituting herself out to Boaz and waiting till he's drunk to come and do that. And, and Dr. Currid, who uh, he's a Hebrew, exceptional Hebrew scholar, widely respected, says that's just not what's going on here in the language. It's just not. Yes, there is romance, and we're going to talk about that. And yes, Ruth is coming and saying, redeem me, marry me. But this is not some sexual escapade at the, at the threshing floor, which is the equivalent of, like, the, the barn. That's not what this is. Okay? And, and we'll see in a couple, uh, a couple minutes why that distinction is pretty important. And, and really what that says is that we need to be careful sometimes when, the, when we're reading the Bible to not read our own present culture back into that culture. We lived in perhaps one of the most sexually satiated cultures in the history of the world, and to kind of just lay that over on this is a little bit unfair, and that's not really doing the text justice. So just want to say that before we, before we look at this. So first point right there, the reality of burden. <clears throat> Sorry, allergies are real. Um, in order to grasp what's going on here, uh, we have to understand kind of the flow of what's happening. So if you have or haven't been here for a couple weeks, let me catch us up to speed. Um, Naomi uh, who's one of the women in this passage, uh, was married to a man named Elimelech. And they were from uh, Israel in the, in the clan of Bethlehem. That's the area they were from. Uh, there was a famine in Israel, and so they left Israel and went to Moab, which was one of their enemy lands, because Moab had food. And so they kind of willingly put themselves in this foreign culture uh, for that sake, and they took their two sons with them. When they got to Moab, Elimelech, Moab's, uh, Naomi's husband, dies. Okay, and that's a bad thing, but then it gets worse because then her sons get married. And we all know what that's like when sons get married. They leave their parents. Um, but then it gets worse because the sons die. And so here is Naomi with her daughters-in-law. And uh, Naomi's in a foreign land, and she is vulnerable. She doesn't have anyone to take care of her. She has no one to provide for her. And in that society, uh, the men did the work. It was an agrarian society, a very hard physical labor, labor society. And so um, she heard, Naomi heard that Israel, the famine was over. And so she grabs her daughters-in-law and says, come back with me. And they were like, yeah, yeah, we're going to go with you. And finally, Orpah says, no, I'm not going to go. But Ruth says, I will go with you. 
For, for my people, your people will be my people, and your home, my home, your God, my God. I will covenant with you. I will cleave to you. I am never leaving you, Naomi. I am with you. So Ruth and Naomi come back to Israel, and, and Ruth starts working. And we looked at that last week, that Ruth goes out to this field, and this amazing man named Boaz uh, takes care of Ruth and gives her all this food and, and meets her needs and does all this stuff. And at the end of the day, Ruth comes home and Naomi says, tell me about your day. How did it go? And it it went really well because she brought home all this food. She said, whose field did you work in? She said, Boaz. And Naomi's lights come on and she she said, oh, Boaz, he's one of our kinsmen redeemers. Now, we all know what that means, right? No. A kinsman redeemer in that culture was like the next of kin. In the case of widowhood where someone's husband died, this would be the person who would, who would swoop in and, and he would marry whoever it was that had been widowed. <clears throat> okay, so Ruth was this eligible widow at this point. And so was Naomi. She was old and advanced in years. And so Ruth was still of marrying age. And Naomi's saying, you could get him to marry you and then we could be taken care of. He would redeem us. You can listen to last week's podcast to hear what that whole idea of redemption meant. But here's the big deal. Excuse me, man, I'm struggling. Um, Here's the big thing about that. That when when Boaz uh, shows up as this kinsman redeemer, they've got to hatch a plan on how to get him to know that he's one of their relatives, that he's one of their redeemers. Um, and so this is what happens. This is where we find ourselves in this passage. Naomi, right there off the bat in verse 1, sends Ruth back to Boaz, and she tells her in verse 3, Wash, therefore, and anoint yourself, and put your cloak and go down to the threshing floor, but do not make yourself known to the man till he's finished eating and drinking. What Naomi tells Ruth is, get ready. It's time to put your going out clothes on, Ruth. Um, put the, the perfume on, anoint yourself. That's what she's saying. You're getting ready to go meet Boaz. Go to his workplace and go and wait there until he's finished eating. Now, this is where everyone wants to say until he's finished eating and drinking. In Hebrew, there is a word for like drinking too much and getting drunk. That's just not this word. It's at the end of a, heart, of a long day of work. Um, he would have had a meal, and then he would have gone and crashed there at the threshing floor where he was working. And so Naomi says, go and meet him right there. And again, um, not saying go and seduce him. Here's what she is saying. Go get dressed up. Your days of mourning over, over the death of your husband are over. It's time for us to find a way to, to care for ourselves. And so he, he sends Ruth down there. Uh, to tell Boaz, in effect, that she's ready to be redeemed. She's ready to be uh, ransomed, to be taken care of. Now, when Naomi tells Ruth in the following verses to uncover his feet and to lie there, again, people will say, man, good grief. He's, she's trying to get in the bed with him. She's trying to get in the, under the covers with him. You know, la, 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 la. Here's what she's doing. It's a sign of of submission. She's putting herself at the mercy of Boaz and saying, look, I'm here. She is making herself unbelievably vulnerable. And she's entrusting herself to this man who has shown himself to be a very worthy and good and upright and, and noble and godly man. And she's saying, here I am, Boaz. 
if you're the man that I, that I think you are, that I believe for you to be, then will you deal with us rightly? And she lays herself at his feet. And he wakes up in the middle of the night startled. Now, you aren't necessarily startled if you've just had a sexual encounter with someone. You don't wake up and say, whoa, who? You, there's someone here. And so that's what he does. He's like, oh my gosh, there's someone at the bed. Who are you? In verse 9, she says, I'm Ruth. And I'm here paraphrasing. I'm hoping, Boaz, that you'll marry me. And I'm hoping that you'll take all of my burdens and my family's burdens onto you, for you're one of our redeemers. You are one of our redeemers, Boaz. You can take care of us. Will you do that? And friends, for the rest of this passage, the pregnant question in here that's waiting to be answered is this. What is Boaz going to do with Ruth? Because she has just come and and made herself unbelievably vulnerable. She's gotten dressed up. She's made herself smell nice. She's dressed prettily. prettily, um, Nicely. um, And she's come and said, what will you do with me, Boaz? What will you do with me and my burdens? As I was thinking about um, this passage tonight, I, I thought about The Bachelor, obviously. Um, <clears throat> so what happens on The Bachelor? Uh, the women on The Bachelor are announcing to the world in some way, I'm available. In a very real way, I'm available. And I'm willing to put myself out there and look like an idiot on national TV for a number of weeks. And um, I'm even willing to, to endure these conversations with a guy who just told me he had a connection with me, and he also has a connection with 14 other people. I'm willing to do that. I, I think that's actually a level of vulnerability because you're just made to look so stupid. Um, and so they do this, and, and they kind of share parts of their lives along the way. And then you get down to the last two, and the vulnerability increases because um, they take uh, the bachelor to meet their family, and then they go do the fantasy night or whatever ridiculous thing that is. And the vulnerability increases, and I was kind of like, man, that, that's really what's happening. And then I realized it wasn't. <laughs> it wasn't, because the thing about The Bachelor is, and the thing about our lives is, they, they try everything possible to actually not look needy. Like, they don't, they're not sharing real burdens throughout that show. They're trying to be peppy and happy and act like they don't care that all these other girls are getting told the exact same thing. And they're saying, I love you, and he's saying, I love you to everybody else. Like, they're just trying to be wonderful. And never in the, in the history of The Bachelor are they, say, are they taking episodes to say, hey, I need to tell you all of my stuff. Like, I'm going to back up the dump truck of my life on you, and beep, 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 it's just going to come all over you. That doesn't happen. They hide burdens. They shelve their burdens. And I think that we do that too. We functionally move into relationships and, and it's almost, it's, a de, it's default for us. We don't want people to know that we have real needs, that we have real burdens, that, that if you join yourself to me, whether in friendship or in romantic relationship, or in marriage, or, or anything, then, then you're going to have to deal with the real me. If this is going to be a relationship worth having, then I've just got to tell you, I have my own burdens. And so on, <clears throat> on a thing like The Bachelor, and really on a thing like 
our lives, when we come into a relationship, what we're asking is, can your love carry my burdens? Can your love carry my burdens? Are you the kind of person who can handle me? And that's scary. That, that's a question we're asking in a thousand ways, but which we'll probably never ask through our mouth and through our words. Because to ask that question is to speak deeply of commitment, and, and we all know that commitment is terrifying. So what would it look like to answer that question or to have someone answer that question of you if you ask them functionally or actually? Do you have the love to carry my burdens? What would it look like for them to say yes? How would they demonstrate that, yes, I will carry your burdens? I will be the kind of person who will love you deeply and fully and forever. What does that look like? What does it look like to willingly bear a friend's burdens for the rest of your life, which is going to cost you tremendously? It's going to cost your time. It's going to require. It's going to cost your emotional energy. It's going to cost maybe your reputation to, to love that person. What does that look like? And I'm going to say, in an ultimate sense, it looks like Jesus, because that's what Jesus does. His love was so rich and so pure and so real that He came to bear the burdens of the world. And we'll talk about that more in a second. But in a very real. And yet, proximate sense, Jesus is the ultimate example. Boaz is the proximate, near example in this passage. It looks like Boaz. And so, second point here, let's look and see what it looks like for Boaz to actually bear burdens. So, Boaz assumes that burdens are coming whenever he moves toward Ruth and whenever he accepts what she's offering here. And there's six ways that we see this. The first thing that we see from Boaz, the very practical nature of what it looks like to bear someone's burden, is that he guards her dignity. He guards her dignity. He doesn't shame her. He doesn't scorn her for this act of vulnerability, this thing that she's done. He just doesn't. He could have. He could have made her look stupid, look and feel stupid, but he doesn't. He protects her dignity. He he affirms it and says, you're... You're a real person, and you have real cares and concerns and needs, and I'm not going to make fun of you right here. He doesn't take advantage of her. He could have. He could have exploited her and sent her out and and blamed it on her. He was the powerful man in the community, right? He could have used her, but he didn't. And we learn in that that bearing the burden of others always affirms looking for dignity in whoever it is. And y'all, that's going to be hard. It's going to be hard from time to time because there are people who will drive you crazy in this world. You know that. And you also need to know that you drive some people crazy. (laughs) Cheer up. Um, You're not as easy to love maybe as you think you are. And so know that when others affirm you and find the good in you, then they're being very kind. They're being Jesus to you in that moment. Bearing burdens looks like affirming and guarding dignity. Secondly, he bestows praise and blessing on her. Look at verse 10. So not only does he not shame her, he actually turns around and calls a blessing from the Lord on her. He said, may you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter. You could have married a younger, more attractive husband, but you came to me 
Because you knew that I could take care of not only you, but I could take care of your family. I can solve your crisis. I can solve your needs. And Boaz celebrates her for that. He's saying, I'm old, I'm I'm beyond my prime, and you set aside your own desires and your your want of having a a hot husband who maybe had a better body, and I'm kind of settled into this beer gut at 50, like... And he's saying, you did a beautiful thing. In fact, this is more kind than even the kindnesses you've showed before. This is a tremendous act. Bless you. Bless you. Bearing others' burdens means that we meet them with encouragement and blessing. Think about that. Do you encourage and bless those around you? Do you? I'm not saying it has to be this formal pronouncement like it is here, but are you someone who's regularly looking for ways to affirm people through your words and to say, man... I really appreciate you sharing that with me. That must have been really hard. That means a lot that you would trust me and say that to me. Or when you see someone do something nice um, or treat someone with kindness, will you tell them that, that you saw that and that was really great and, it, it, um, you know, and you really appreciated that or you saw them stop a gossip conversation or whatever it is? Are you the kind of person who affirms through words and brings blessing and encouragement to people? That's what it looks like to bear burdens. We're lifting the ease of the life from them, and we're providing ease. Lifting the weight of life, providing ease. Thirdly, bearing burdens means calming fears. Look at verse 11. He turns to her and says, Now, my daughter, do not fear. Why would Ruth have been afraid? Uh, Let me think. Foreigner in this land, um, she is essentially lowest of the low, has no standing. She is below the servants. And she's coming to the master, to one of the powerful people in the community. He could have, as we said in verse one or number one right there, he could have made her look totally stupid. Right? This is a very fearful thing. She's there being vulnerable, and he looks and he calms her fears. Friends, bearing burdens means calming fears for other people. We don't wait for them to say, here's all of my insecurities, blah, blah, blah. We come and answer those questions for them before they ask them. And we say, hey, I like you. Hey, you can tell me whatever. I'm not going to go off and tell anyone. Um, You can come and stay at my apartment until whenever you need to. You can cry with me. I'm not going to make fun of you. We calm each other's fears. We seek to do that. We seek to enter into each other's lives. We put people at ease. Fourthly, bearing burdens means that that we protect reputation instead of just looking out for our own. In verses 13 and 14, he tells her to stay the night, and he's not asking her to have sex. He's saying, stay the night here, my daughter. We've already seen from weeks past that this language of my daughter, my daughter, he's trying to protect her. He essentially sees her like uh, himself as a father figure. He's, he's bringing her security in the midst of a, what would have been a hostile cultural, culture for her as a foreigner. He says, stay the night. Don't leave right now. Terrible things may happen to you. We're going to get you out of here in the morning before anyone can see you. I'm going to protect you. I'm not going to shame you. I'm not going to uh, let you be harmed. He's looking out for her reputation. And you have to understand that he does this at a cost to his own reputation. Because for him to have this foreigner, this servant of servants, walk out in the morning and risk being seen, that 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 would have made him appear like, uh, uh, one who uses prostitutes or, or one who is sleeping with the, these foreigners, these other people. So he takes that risk on himself. Bearing burdens requires caring for others' reputation more than your own. 
Fifthly, he meets her real needs. Look at verses 12 and 13. Just glance there. Ruth's and Naomi's greatest need is to have someone who would provide for them and who would take care of them, protect them, restore their family land and all of these things. And Boaz doesn't just go for what's best for him. He's looking out for her real needs. He's trying to figure out, okay, I, I see what you've got going on. I need to figure out how we can make this happen. Turns out there's a, there's a relative that's closer um, in lineage to you than I am, so I need to go talk to him first and see if he'll do it. And if he won't do it, then I'll do it. He's looking out for her real needs. But lastly, sixthly, he also looks out for her felt needs. He's trying to take care of her. And so again, he sends her out with barley. He sends her out with food. He's trying to meet the deep needs and also the real presenting felt needs. He quite simply is trying to bear her burdens. And what I hope you see in that list is a list that's going to exhaust you. Following Jesus is exhausting. To bear other people's burdens in this world is exhausting. And what that means is that burdens are real. If you are not tired as a Christian from loving people around you, I don't know that you're loving people around you. Loving people entails and necessitates bearing burdens. It always does. You've been bearing your roommate's burdens as she's worked through that breakup. You've spent countless hours and nights helping others on homework whenever you didn't need the help. You, you were the expert in the class, and yet, out of your own kindness, you try and help them. You stay up. You lose sleep over that. You've loaned out money, which you haven't seen a dime of in return. You've traveled on weekends to see your sick family member, just to love them and to be with them. And you're exhausted. And you need to know you shouldn't feel tired. You shouldn't feel bad about feeling tired. You shouldn't feel bad about that. You're free in Jesus to actually know that sometimes you can actually take a break. And you can sit at home one afternoon and not go serve at Habitat again because you just need to rest. You're free in Jesus to do that. And lastly, what I want us to see tonight, and much more quickly, is this. I want you to, sh- to see that that bearing burdens isn't actually the end game of this. Sharing burdens is. See, bearing one of those burdens is a, is a command. It's, it's part of the Christian life. It's what Christians do because it's what Jesus did. Jesus bore our burdens. But think about this. That If bearing other people's burdens makes us tired, how can Kaylee have read what she read? That when Jesus says, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, I will give you rest. Okay, so how can I say that being a Christian and following Jesus will exhaust you? And how can Jesus say, if you come to me, I'll give you rest? Those seem to be contradictory. And I think the only way to make sense of this is if we consider the one who said that. If we consider Jesus the one who said he offers rest. Think about it this way. Jesus is the all-sufficient God of heaven and earth. He had everything. He needed nothing. He had no burdens. And he willingly entered a world and became a burden for others. Do you know that? Do you know that Jesus slept in other people's houses? Do you know that Jesus ate other people's food? 
Do you know that Jesus lived on support? You'll see these women who followed Jesus around in the Gospels, and it says they gave of their goods for him. Jesus lived like a missionary. He became a burden for others. The all-sufficient, all-possessing God stooped down and became a burden for others. Why? Because Jesus didn't just come to give us an example of what we're to do. He came to be with us. He is the God with us. And he can say that my burden is light because in comparison to the burden that he actually came to carry in this life, it is light. Because Jesus actually came to this world to carry the burden of the world's sin, of your sin and my sin, and the sin of the world on his shoulders. And friends, when compared to that, the burden of following him and bearing others' burdens, it is immeasurably light. And Jesus took that burden to the cross. And in our favorite children's storybook Bible, it says it wasn't the nails that kept Jesus on the cross. It was love. See, the burden of love that Jesus had actually kept him on the cross. It made him go through with the redemption that he came to carry out. He was the greater Boaz who didn't just come to redeem a few people. He came to redeem a whole humanity and recreate a whole new family for God. So he didn't just bear our burdens. He shares his burden with us so that we might know that he's with us in the midst of our burdens. And y'all, when Jesus came and shared his burdens with us, what that does is it means that for you to share your burdens with others is actually a godly thing for you to do. It is godliness for you to share your burdens with people around you. It is not something to be afraid of or ashamed of. It actually makes you human. Jesus was the most full human that ever lived, and he shared his burdens. Let me close with this story. There's a, um, a story that, that kind of floats around. I'm not exactly sure when it happened. Um, a pastor in Illinois named Brian Chapel tells a story. And I've, I've said it before, but it's really good, so I'm going to tell it again. Um, back in, in the early 1900s, there was a flood in the Mississippi River, and... Um, there were two boys who often went out to play by the river and would go play in the sand hills and all this stuff. But one of the things that happened in the flood is that um, whenever the, the flood would overspill its banks and then it would get dry again, um, it would create these chasms in the sand, right? And the sun would come and harden over um, the sand and look like it was solid ground, but oftentimes it wasn't. And so these boys were out playing by the river and um, one of these, these sand domes collapsed, and the boys got trapped in there. And toward the end of the day, their parents noticed they weren't coming home. And so they went out there, and, and eventually uh, one, of the, uh, one of the rescue workers found the younger brother. They found him, and, and he was alive, and he was sticking his hand out of, the, uh, out of the sand and yelling as best he could. The weight of it was all around him, so he was just at the very end, but he got their attention and in the rescue, they said, well, where, where's your brother? Did you see him? And he said, yes, I'm standing on his shoulders. What happened was the older brother saw his younger brother, and he went underneath him and put the burden of his life on his shoulders so that his younger brother might live. That is the gospel for you. 
Jesus came to put you on his shoulders. You, do, you don't have to be strong. He can and will right now carry all of your burdens for the rest of your life. He is your redeemer. He's the greater Boaz. His is the love story of all love stories. Would you come to him, return to him tonight? Let's pray together. Father, we do thank you that yours is a good story. And that your love led, led you to send your son to become poor, to become needy and dependent on others, and then fully and finally to bear our sin. And it crushed him. It put him under the sand for us so that we might stand on his shoulders and live. Would you meet us with that tonight? Pray and ask in Jesus' name, amen.